0: who are looking to understand the key training variables and their effect on the simultaneous development of strength and endurance performance. Get your copy now, available to buy from Amazon. Now, let's get into the show hello and welcome to the progress theory where we discuss scientific principles for optimizing human performance my name is dr phil price and on today's episode we are joined by professor louis passfield sports scientist and physiologist from the university of calgary now cycling despite being a huge sport on its own is gaining popularity within the hybrid training community more and more people are turning to cycling as their chosen sport to develop their endurance while at the same time developing their strength. So bearing this in mind, what are the determinants of cycling performance? Well, in this episode, myself and Professor Passfield discuss certain metrics you can use such as heart rate and power for tracking your cycling performance. What is cycling efficiency? And discuss a number of tips that are gonna help you develop your cycling performance. I want to take a moment to express my gratitude to my production partner, Cult Media. Cult Media has been instrumental in the development and success of The Progress Theory. They have created brand guides, comprehensive podcast strategies, enhanced the podcast production, developed custom workflows for me, and edited and mixed all of the video, audio, and social media content. Cult Media's simple coach, create, and collaborate process has saved me hundreds of hours in podcast production, resolved countless technical issues, and consistently helped me to improve my podcasting game. So if you want to establish and engage your audience, or are ready to launch your own podcast, head to www.cult.media, that's Cult with a K, to learn more. Also, thank you to Human24, fueling human potential and optimizing everyday human performance and well-being. The supplement range at Human24 not only helps improve your lifestyle, it optimizes it. The Human24 products are designed to fit around your circadian rhythms from the moment you wake up to key moments in the day when you need optimal focus to getting the best night's sleep. There is a product to optimize each phase of the day. My personal favorite is the Live On Form Pack, consisting of the products Rise, Flow, and Pre-Sleep. Rise is for the morning, and it's my absolute favorite. It's a drink that tastes amazing, it hydrates me, and improves my focus to win the morning. At 2 p.m., I take Flow, which is a caffeine-free nootropic, perfect for improving alertness and concentration during that mid-afternoon slump. And finally, I take pre-sleep just before bed, which is a comprehensive nighttime complex, perfect to support a performance-driven lifestyle. Check out the website, www.hmn24.com, for all their products, articles, and links to their awesome podcast for those wanting to learn more about human performance. You can even check out the episode I did with them. I thoroughly enjoyed my chat with Phil Lerney, co-founder of Human24, and it has led to an awesome collaboration with Human24 supporting The Progress Theory. If you want a 10% discount on all Human24 products, head to their website via the links in our Instagram bios of The Progress Theory or my personal Instagram account at Dr. DrPhilPrice or use the code PhilPrice at checkout. As always, follow The Progress Theory on Instagram, YouTube, head to our website, theprogresstheory.com, and check out all of our other episodes. Here is Professor Louis Passfield. Louis, how are we? (laughs) Hi, Phil. Great
1: to see you. I'm very good, thank you.
0: Yeah, Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. I I know we were talking just before we've started recording because this season's all about developing strength and endurance simultaneously. We talked about the differences or the different domains within the endurance sports of running or cycling and we talked about how cycling is probably my newest area and I got to it by being very fascinated by the physiology of the human body during endurance performance rather than loving the sport and coming towards the science of it through that way so i think i'm going to learn a lot from today's episode so thank you so much for coming on to onto the progress theory
1: it's my pleasure and i hope i don't let you down too much i think we share that passion because i i guess the the subtle difference between you and i is that once i harbored a dream to ride in the tour de france so i was inspired by cycling mm-hmm. both as a participant as well as particularly from that curiosity about how the body works, and in particular, how I could push my body to make it work more effectively. So uh, yeah, but whether that can translate that into something useful for you or not, let's see how the next few minutes unfold.
0: <laughs> I think it definitely will. For listeners who are unfamiliar with your work, do you want to give a bit of overview of yourself and your research and how you got into cycling research? Oh gosh,
1: yes. Well, I, I guess actually what I've just said is a, is a little bit of a prelude to it. So the the, the way that I typically introduce myself is to say that I started studying sports science because I wanted to win the Tour de France, and I thought that it, one way of doing this would be to go to university, to study at university, and then metaphorically kind of sit with my spreadsheet in front of me and translate all of that theory in, into practice in terms of my own training program. And I say metaphorically just because in those days, laptops weren't a thing. So it, it, was, it was all handwritten notes and everything. But I, as I came to graduate, I also learned two really important lessons. And it came about by virtue of the fact I was really fortunate to find myself in um, an Olympic training camp as a graduate student for, with cycling. But I was there as a sports scientist rather than as a cyclist. And the first lesson that I'd learned was that um, even though I graduated in sports science, I still didn't have all the answers in terms of how to train really effectively. So there was an awful lot that science couldn't tell us and really, really simple practical questions that any athlete or coach would want to know. So not kind of complicated, difficult questions, but things like how hard should I train? How long should I train for? How much recovery do I need? Those really fundamental basic parts from everything I'd learned so far, I couldn't answer those from a scientific perspective. So that was a tough lesson because that was kind of like my mission derailed straight away. And then the second one was that at the Olympic training camp, we were, it just so happened that that first uh, camp was focused on junior cyclists. And by this point, I'd been training for the best part of 10 years. And then I watched these junior cyclists in the race. I was sat with the, with the um, national uh, team coach at the time following the, the riders in this race and I realized they were doing things I still dreamed about being able to do on my bike 10 years into my kind of cycling ambitions. And so I realized the other thing that I lacked was the talent. So that was my kind of my in my in on sport, on sport science was that, yeah, it doesn't have all the answers. And that even if it did, I would have lacked the talent to realize the ambition that that I had. But I've also found myself in a wonderfully privileged position that I was working as a scientist with British Cycling and actually initially also with British Triathlon. And then I've kind of had a, an in-and-out relationship with British Cycling over many years since then. So the in being with, working with British Cycling and the elite cyclists helping them prepare for Olympic Games and the out being returning back to academia. And then that kind of culminated in me working with British Cycling up until the Beijing Olympics in 2008. And after that, I then moved to the University of Kent where I, I focus much more on the cycling research side, but at the same time, I was very privileged because the English Institute of Sport have also kept me very loosely involved as a, a conversational physiologist. So their physiologists do all the hard work, and then I come in from time to time. And I've been deemed too old and unsafe to let, be let loose on coaches or athletes. But apparently scientists are still safe enough that I can still talk to them and occasionally <laughs> impart some words of experience that, that might benefit them too. So since that time and right up to this day, I've been working with the physiology team at, e, at EIS, which, is, which has been awesome. So great fun, highly rewarding, and they're a fantastic team of people. So that just kind of gives you a bit of a sense of the, the various different things. So applied research, sorry, applied work, applied research, and, and a little bit of work with other applied sports scientists.
0: Mm. That's a really nice story because if I link it to my own academic journey, a lot of that came from wanting to know uh, a particular topic to try and help myself. So my PhDs in the knee. And I wanted to learn more about my knee because my knee kept getting injured. So it's like, oh, I want to do that. So in my case, I want to improve the function of my knee or in my case, probably hip and foot. And yourself was like, I want to improve my performance in cycling. So I need to (laughs) learn more about that. It's quite two different domains, but quite similar stories which have driven us towards academia in a way.
1: Uh, Absolutely. And and the overlap is even more marked in terms of my story for my PhD was I wanted to better understand why people get tired during prolonged cycling. So that's what I looked at. (laughs)
0: <laughs> hmm. it would be great to lead you back to those junior cyclists because to try and give like an overview of what an elite cyclist is like physiologically what are the physiological determinants which made those junior cyclists better or so good that you feel that you could never reach to that level what what makes them better than an amateur cyclist for example
1: I mean, I guess in really crude terms, from a cycling perspective, what I appreciated was actually the, the speed that they could sustain over extended periods of time, mm. uh, either when they're working in a group, which then makes the effort more on-off, because they take it in turns sh- sharing the pace on the front, or if they made an effort either to get away on their own or in a very small group, where they're then having to sustain high speeds either individually or, as I said, with a much smaller group, so working much more on their own independently. And I realised that 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 was what I was watching them do was something that I still wasn't capable of doing. I wasn't capable of producing that kind of sustained speed for that length of time that they were and so then from a physiological point of view of course what we we, what we appreciate there is that there's a significant underpinning from an of uh, aerobic fitness and vo2 max in particular Mm. but our our vo2 max sets are in, in a ceiling if you like or our capacity for aerobic work but not everybody can necessarily exercise at vo2 max for any length well sorry let me reframe that we can't exercise at vo2 max for any length of time so fatigue kicks in but what these people were these cyclists were able to do was to sustain a a higher percentage of their vo2 max as well so they had a high ceiling and they could sustain a high percentage of that and and i recognized that my ceiling was just innately not as high and whether i could sustain you know the same percentage or not kind of didn't matter because my engine was just that much smaller to start with
0: when you say your vo2 max or your ceiling was just not high enough is that very much a genetic thing or is that something that can be trained we've had on the podcast a number of coaches who talked about VO2max in terms of runners uh, and they talked a lot about how VO2max or an athlete's VO2max kind of plateaued around early 20s so it wasn't necessarily the, the main factor which improved their performances later in their career it was one factor which was important and because of that it was kind of like they trained to a point where they reached a genetic ceiling early on in their career and then they continued training on other aspects which improved them yeah how much genetics are involved when it comes to cycling i guess i i mean this is
1: a, a kind of classic question for particularly for sports science students as well to unpick the nature versus nurture debate so I'll, I'll tackle it mm. from a very slightly different perspective. And, and that's that in working with cyclists, I've done hundreds of VO2 max tests with cyclists in, in my career. And, and that's given me the privilege of being able to watch cyclists develop over a period of time. And unquestionably, even elite cyclists can increase their VO2 max. But that, that increase is relatively small. So they tend to start with big engines, and they can increase them a little bit. And somebody who doesn't start with such a big engine may be able to increase their, their engine size more substantially. This is where, inevitably, the story becomes more nuanced. So what we see is with elite athletes, their overall level of fitness, their broad, the broad size of their engine, their VO2 max, doesn't change much on an annual basis. And then what they do is target specific aspects of their fitness that prepare them particularly for whatever that race might be and that aspect of fitness probably goes up and down a little bit and so a a really neat example is when when i was at the university of kent i I, i've done a lot of work with james hopker measuring people's efficiency now if you're efficient you can have the same vo2 max but you can translate that vo2 max into more power output and power output on a bike Mm -hmm. means you go faster so more power means a faster cyclist. In running, we have exactly the same concept with economy. And I won't go into the, into the semantics mm. of the, the physiology and the biomechanics of a difference between them. But broadly, we can think of these, same things, these things in the same way. So an economical runner can run at a certain speed using or requiring less oxygen. So if you can, you can imagine if you are more efficient or more economical, then you, you can produce more power or you can run faster for the same cost and that economy or efficiency parameter can change as much as vo2 max in elite athletes and so although actually in cycling that's a little bit i should say that's a little bit of a debated point we we have been criticized for that viewpoint on occasion but i'm talking about data from our own and some other labs that that we've obtained repeatedly that suggests that efficiency changes with fitness across the season and we think that that relates to a change in performance as well that bit is a little bit more speculative because it's quite hard to evaluate how changes in fitness correspond to changes in fit, sorry, changes in efficiency correspond to changes in fitness. But the, the key bit that I'm getting at here is you've kind of got your overall engine size, which is your VO2 max, but then you've got something like your efficiency, which can go up and down as well. So now we've got two things that can kind of float around a little bit. And ironically, what we've actually found in some of our research is that the two things go in opposition. So typically, if your VO2 max goes up, you become a little bit less economic or a little bit less efficient. And there's some long-term data on two elite athletes, so Paula Radcliffe, the the marathon runner, and uh, Lance Armstrong, who you may have heard of. I know you said your background wasn't in cycling, but you may still have come across him. Hmm. And in both cases, they showed a similar long-term development trend from studies that were published on them, where their VO2 maxes at a relatively early stage in their career stabilized and didn't increase very much. Their performances continue to increase. So we're talking about measurements taken well before, for example, Paula Radcliffe was um, marathon world record holder, or data from before Armstrong started winning the Tour de France. Their VO2 max appears to have maintained, been stable across that period of career, where their performance performances picked up. But their efficiency or economy values appear to improve systematically over that period of time. So we can kind of think of, you need to have that big engine, you need to have that VO2max to be successful in an endurance activity like cycling, like running or triathlon. But there may be other aspects of your fitness that perhaps are a little bit more pliable later on in your career. And it's nudging those things that's the challenge.
0: What type of things improves efficiency on a bike? I understand economy from almost like acting like a spring. And by doing so, you're running at a higher speed for a lower oxygen cost. But obviously, it's a bit different when you're on a bike and some of that efficiency would come from the bike itself. And I've read some of your work regarding yeah. <laughs> how, I think in this study, athletes were compared by being upright versus in a time trial position and that affected their efficiency and then affected their values in performance testing. So yeah, is it positioning or is it more different biomechanical aspects which can affect efficiency on a bike? Uh-huh.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was a study led by one of my colleagues, Simon Jobson, who's at uh, University of Winchester. And it was a, a lovely reminder to us that in cycling, you're trying to work at overcoming a range of different things at the same time. So you want to maximize your physical capabilities, but at the same time, you want to make yourself as small and aerodynamic as possible so you can punch through the air as efficiently as possible in an aerodynamic from so efficiency from an aerodynamic perspective rather than what we were talking about before which was more about how efficient the muscles are at translating oxygen into energy the problem is that those most aerodynamic positions are rather cramped and don't enable you to necessarily develop your full power output so as you say what what then happens is there's a kind of a delicate trade-off that occurs now I'm starting to move beyond my area of expertise here in that I know that there are people who have done a lot more work in this field since than than, than I have. But broadly speaking, most elite cyclists and indeed triathletes adopt the most aerodynamic position that they can achieve on a bicycle because they would actually compromise their, their performance on the bike in terms of the power they can produce. So they, they try to find that balance between something that enables them to sleep, slip through the air very smoothly but at the same time maximize their power output. And then it's slightly convoluted because aerodynamics have a massive effect in terms of its impact on how hard you work. So the resistance that you face aerodynamically increases with the cube of your speed. So your speed times your speed times your speed gives you the resistance that, that you're overcoming. So you slightly favor the aerodynamics over your, over your own power output or your, your physical performance, but not by very much because it, um, the other thing, of course, that you don't want to happen is that you just fatigue sooner as well. So, so far, we've just been thinking about it as somebody who, who just produces their power and keeps going, keeps going. But of course, that's not the case. We all get tired when we exercise as well. And that tiredness will compromise your performance too. So your position is both how smoothly you can slip through the air, how much power you can generate on your bike, and then how quickly you fatigue in that position.
0: Wow. <laughs> that's really comprehensive. That's wicked to hear. Because I think people quite new to cycling would just assume, oh, you want to be in the most aerodynamic position possible because drag from the air air resistance Mm -hmm. is going to be so powerful that you just need automatically, need to be in that most aerodynamic position that there is and then you just try and get as strong as possible in that position (laughs) rather than finding a trade-off so that's really quite interesting
1: yes exactly and so just to reiterate as i said the most elite cyclists don't get as aerodynamic as they possibly can for that reason
0: yeah so to try and get stronger or increase your power output in this position would you then do a mix of training in high intensity domains where you you, you're providing high amounts of power output and then that alongside long intervals of lower power output so it's like a mix between high intensity interval training and your low intensity steady state duration training is that kind of a good balance to have to try and uh, develop a better efficiency
1: yes so the the physiological answer to your question is we don't know so it, it's remarkable that actually the factors that make an efficient cyclist is, is still something that, that eludes us from a, from a research perspective we're, we're not entirely sure for a long time we thought that for example the percentage of slow twitch fibers you had was a really important factor in and that people with a high percentage of slow twitch fibers were more efficient but again with James Hopker and Hannah Gregson, research student working with us, we did a study a few years ago now where we biopsied 40. Uh, different cyclists either experienced or inexperienced young and old in order to to look at this question and we didn't find a strong relationship between uh, muscle fibers and how efficient the cyclists were so whether they were inexperienced or experienced whether they were young or old we couldn't find a very clear relationship there and that surprised us because we had kind of thought that we we might confirm some earlier findings which had suggested this but but we didn't. The problem is that that then left the door wide open to what does determine efficiency. And we're still not really much clearer on that today. Now, there may be a couple of people that have done some work that I'm not aware of. So there may be someone listening to your podcast that's jumping up and down going, I know, I know, you should look at my, <laughs> the work mm. that I've done. But that, that's the kind of broad thing. We know also that a whole bunch of different factors affect how efficient somebody is, and particularly related to things like their position on the bicycle. So if you've got your saddle height wrong, that's that's going to make a difference. If you sit way too low mm. uh, or way too high, if you just change the geometry of the bike, that too can make a difference. So these aerodynamic positions will change your efficiency as well, and even your cadence. And the cadence is a is a common tricky one because people know that elite cyclists, experienced cyclists, pedal very quickly, but it turns out from a physiological perspective that if very fast pedaling is not the most efficient and actually the most efficient pedaling rates are much slower than most experienced cyclists would consider and so what that tells us is that efficiency isn't the whole story that there are other factors that are important in this as well so it's a kind of reminder that we can grab hold of one thing but we've got to remember there's a constellation of different factors that impact on, on on performance and so where that takes me in terms of your question then so eventually i get there is the different intensities of exercise i think my broad guidance particularly to people who aren't especially experienced and are are thinking about their own training programs is to mix up your training to get a range of different um, types of sessions included in what you do and that will give you a nice broad spectrum of physiological adaptations across a range of different intensities And at the same time, it also serves as a kind of quasi experiment for you as well, because then you'll start to notice over a period of time, which intensities seem to work most effectively for you. Because for sure, the blend of different training elements that you add together needs to be different for each person to account for their personal physiology. Now you can't, know all of there is to know of your physiology. Even if you're an elite athlete with access to the best resources in the world, money, no, no limitation, you still wouldn't be able to fully describe your fitness. And the benefit of a great coach is that they help short circuit that process for you and start to recognize what kind of an athlete you are and what kinds of sessions make you tick. Mm. So my, my kind of starting point is always to encourage athletes to do a range of different things. So that they, they they can start to spot which things work for them. So yes, some longer, slower intensity work, and yes, some shorter, high intensity work, and then start to fine tune that process from there.
0: Okay. How would you find like the intensity that's right for you? So, I'm for a beginner, it would we be do short, hard, intense bursts for one session, and then uh, long, low intensity sets for another one, but. I guess as you become mm-hmm. more accustomed on the bike you become a better cyclist you want to try and tailor your training so that you you're working at a power output that's appropriate for the physiological adaptation you're trying to achieve so I know there's some work around developing or finding that threshold level of critical power and then there's functional threshold power there's a lot of names that get thrown around in the in the mm-hmm. cycling research and i was having a conversation with a physiologist the other day and he he said how they're kind of very similar areas within that sort of curve the accumulation of lactate curve They're, they're kind of showing a similar area but there's many different tests showing something quite similar so it can get quite confusing someone that's new to cycling there's like well what about this do i need yes. to find that do i need to find that and then do i train above that do i train below that how much do i do so you can imagine a lot of people getting confusing but um just to start the question again i think why do cyclists focus on power what is it about power that enables you to develop a training program on a bike for it
1: uh-huh yeah well, so when I first started cycling and when I was imagining my dreams of riding in the Tour de France, power measurement wasn't, the, wasn't a thing. It wasn't possible. You mm. might conceivably have been able to find a lab in the world somewhere where they could measure your power output for you, but that would have been largely because you were taking part in some kind of research experiment and wouldn't have been directed at athletes at all. It's only in recent years that, that the technology has evolved to such an extent that we can now measure power reliably. On your own bicycle and r- riding outdoors, indoors, wherever it is that you choose to ride your bike. So that's a relatively new phenomenon. The re- so the the benefit of that is that you can imagine. Let's use myself as an, as an example. Me going out doing my training sessions many years ago, and my sole the sole data that I could gather was I'd have a little milometer strapped to the front wheel of my bike. And every time my wheel rotated, it would tap the milometer and that would nudge it on what one wheel revolution. So it would count the wheel reps. And so over a period of time, I could figure out how far I'd gone by just simply counting the number of wheel reps. Now, in terms of training, that was it. There was no heart rate. There was no power output. There was nothing else. All you could measure was distance. And so typically in that era of professional cycling that's what they talked about was just how how many miles you'd covered in training. Now the the obvious problem with that is you could you could then say okay if this top cyclist does x miles then I'm going to try and do x plus 10 miles so that I'm going to be fitter. But in order to do your x plus 10 miles you just ride a bit more slowly and get and get there taking a bit more time. And that obviously isn't necessarily going to see you get the benefits that you want. And then you don't, You have no account of, for example, whether they are uphill, downhill, with the wind of pushing you along and those kinds of things, all of those things, those kind of games that you could imagine that you might play in order to nudge your mileage up above your rivals. But I actually mean that you don't work as hard. So the next evolution in training technology was when you could measure heart rate on a bicycle when you're out on your training. And this was all available and downloadable uh, for you after the session. And so th- that kind of technology really came in, in, the, particularly in the early 90s. And that in itself revolutionized training, because now people could think about not just how far they traveled but also how hard they were working in the process and the same technology also now enabled you to record your speed and distance so you could see the dissociation between how hard you worked and how far or fast you went so you could if you were compromising on your the intensity of exercise so you're riding more easily in order to train further, you would see that in your heart rate. You'd see your heart rate was much lower on this day, even though you went further. So was that actually beneficial to you? And that was kind of the first wave of sports science intervention where people were encouraged, or athletes in particular, were encouraged to think about the intensity of exercise that they trained at, which was kind of in the area that you were starting to strain, to strain to you when you're talking about lactate threshold and critical power and so forth. The challenge with that is still that as you get fitter, your heart rate response remains broadly the same, but you, you travel faster as you get fitter. But that doesn't take account of the changes in environmental conditions. So if you went out one day and did a hilly ride, and then another day you did a flat ride, you might see the same heart rate response, but you'd see two very different speed responses because one ride was very hilly, one was very flat. So obviously you can go faster on the flat ride, but your heart rate looked exactly the same. And you were trying to get a feel for whether you were fitter or not, but you couldn't tell because your speed is the obvious thing to judge it by. But under those circumstances, you can't compare your flat and your hilly rides. So that's where the power meter comes in because with a power meter on your bike as well, then you can compare how hard you've worked in those rides because the power is talking about how much work you're doing on your bicycle, how much power, how much effort or force you're transmitting to your pedals. And so even if you ride on the flat or on the hills, that remains relatively comparable. And so you can then see, okay, what was my average power? What was my average heart rate? How have those two things moved together? And then speed While still the most important parameter, because ultimately, if you're an athlete, it's your performance that counts, and therefore it's your speed. From a training Mm -hmm. perspective and from getting training metrics, power and heart rate are much more useful on a day-to-day basis for giving you feedback.
0: That's really comprehensive. Thank you very much. Regarding, actually, because I noticed with running, they often utilize something like a three-minute all-out test to determine critical speed. And there's like that that speed, which if you went above that speed, you'd only have like a limited battery, a, a limited amount of time until you reached exhaustion or would be able to slow down completely. Whereas below that critical speed, theoretically, you should be able to maintain that speed for a very long period of time. And I'm assuming that critical power is very similar, but it's obviously on a bike. Is this something you'd recommend a cyclist, Try and find out. Try and get some form of uh, piece of equipment which will allow you to measure power. And then you might be able to do some form of test that will give you that information, that that critical power value. So at least you have some form of threshold which allow you to think, okay, above that threshold, I can do my more intense work. And then below that threshold, I can do my more low intensity, long duration type work.
1: Um, Gosh, there's a, a number of different ways of tackling this question. I guess the short answer is yes, I would en- I'd encourage people to, to think about this. The first reason, and again, with some colleagues, I, r- I wrote a, a paper a few years ago, just a, a perspective paper rather than research one, which we titled Knowledge is Power. And essentially, the point we were making there is that if you have the opportunity to measure your power output in training and performance, then it gives you some, some information or insight That data could be translated ultimately into knowledge and wisdom, potentially. So the benefit of having power output measures either on your bike or being able to get data from a lab or something like that is that it's potentially shortcutting your learning process. But but to be very clear, it, it is a learning process. It's not like you're going to be given the answer by buying a power meter it doesn't guarantee that you're now going to be able to train effectively rather you've got a tool that you can wield to learn more about yourself and what makes you tick and how you can cycle faster and so that's kind of part of the nuance of this is that then there there, there are kind of two two ways that that journey can I- evolve very crudely one is that you can become more and more enthralled as i as i have been over the years in terms of the data and what you can make of that and how you can learn and the insights from that it's a kind of nerdy geeky perspective and then you get into things like how you can evaluate your fitness using different tests that you were talking about and that sort of thing the, the other thing is you can say i'm not really a data geeky kind of person i i but i there's some useful information that I just want to have in order to make sure that I'm training reasonably effectively and to maximize my learning of how I train more effectively. And under those circumstances, there's probably a point at which once you've learned enough about yourself, you don't need the power meter anymore. You can just listen to your body and do it that way. Mm. But the power meter would probably get you there faster than if you have to try to develop that, that insight on, your, on yourself without it. I intentionally try to be a bit provocative and but also binary in my perspective there and there are plenty of people I'm sure that fall in the middle but that's kind of the way that I see it that meter gives you the opportunity to speed up your learning process and then you may get really engrossed in that and then try and refine it refine it refine it or you may go that's okay I now know enough about how my body works and how it responds to exercise to be able to do this a little bit more intuitively without having to look at the numbers all the time As I say I'm being somewhat provocative but that that's kind of the, the way that i would
0: think about it okay that kind of nicely fits into my next question because i've performed a three-minute all-out test uh, we've got a watt bike in my home gym and i used it to find a functional threshold power uh, and it the watt bike gave me a certain number of zones which i can aim my power output to if i want to work on certain aspects of my fitness but that's very good to, and easy to control if i'm in my home gym as soon as I get out on the bike and I'm dealing with traffic and all sorts, it becomes a very different beast. So then my feel in terms of how much power I'm ge- generating goes completely out of the window. And I just have this, I'm working hard, I'm working <laughs> slightly easier. And that's it. Do you see a lot of difference between, you know, working on a what bike versus out on the bike?
1: Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, and, but for a couple of very different reasons as well. The first one is if you really want to do a a concentrated session, either being able to pick the right roads or to train indoors means that you can push yourself hard in a distraction, relatively distraction-free environment. So if you're riding around the city, it can be very hard to get a good training session in that, that you dictate what the nature of those efforts are because there are so many external environmental factors that could influence that. So it may take a degree of careful planning and forethought, which again is part of that process of having a training program and having a coach because then you you set out, if you are training outside, you set out on that ride with a specific ambition about the, the nature of what that session is going to look like and you're trying to find the conditions that enable you to do that. Or you go, I don't want that hassle. I'm just going to train indoors. And then I don't need to. That's one less thing to think about. I can just think about how hard I'm going. So that's one of the differences. The the second one is that actually I was reviewing a paper recently, which seemed to confirm in in numbers that so from objective experimental data, something that I'd noticed um, from my own data and others data in practice, which is that people seem to actually generate more power when they're outside than when they're inside. So ironically, there's me saying mm. when you ride outside, you need a distraction-free environment to be able to focus on the efforts that you want to make. But it also looks like the, the way that it feels to ride a bike enables us to produce more power output when we're outside compared with indoors. So in a really very simplistic example, imagine sprinting flat out on the road. Imagine sprinting indoors on a bike that, that that's tied to a trainer or is a, an ergometer you can generally produce a little bit more power output when you're outside sprinting than when you're inside sprinting. But that doesn't seem to apply just to sprinting. It seems to apply even at lower intensities as well. So if you do a hard 20-minute effort, it looks like you can produce a few percent more power outdoors than you can in. And you're, even if you're using exactly the same measuring device, so it's not the change in instruments that's the issue. It seems to be something about the, the, the way in which riding outside feels different to riding indoors.
0: Oh, so you'd recommend getting out on the bike as much as possible to develop that feel and you're kind of put into a situation where you can develop higher power outputs for longer just because the environment allows you to? Was it not that simple? (laughs) Uh There's
1: a research question that's implied there that hasn't been answered yet, which is the assumption that if you ride outside, produce more power, you get fitter. We don't know that, but it Mm -hmm. makes sense that might be the case. The the flip side of that is, I I would say you you, you should ride outside enough that, that it's a very familiar environment to you. So just having a massive engine on a bike indoors won't, won't be enough to see you succeed outdoors. You, you need to be doing enough. But I don't know what enough looks like. It might be it's only once or twice a week. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to be indoors. And so, for example, I'm now here in Calgary. And at the moment, it's about minus 15 outside. So most enthusiastic cyclists by this time of year have, have discovered their indoor trainer and are doing what they can on that rather than outdoors. So I don't think they necessarily have to get outdoors mm-hmm. to maximize their fitness, but they certainly at some point will feel the benefit of that. And in my own training, what I notice is that um, if I just look at the profile of power outputs I generate when I'm indoors, they're all kind of long, steady-ish type efforts, even if I'm doing intervals relative to what i achieve when i'm outdoors so when you're outdoors you get a little hill a little climb whatever you just get out of the saddle and, and and blast up that or you stop at lights and you accelerate away hard all of those high intensity efforts start to accumulate on an outdoor ride that you never encounter when you're indoors so there's a range of different intensities that you can experience outdoors relatively with, um easily that that are very difficult to replicate indoors
0: i've noticed when i was having a read of your work just yesterday actually you've got a book out called training with power meters I'm, I'm really gutted i haven't managed to read it before uh, before this podcast what do you mean by power meters Would you be able to give a little bit, little bit of an overview of that book i'll definitely look into getting it uh, next but what do you mean by power meters
1: yeah um <laughs> sorry that's embarrassing for me uh, um i i i I'm, the book was written a while ago now i i think i could do a much better job today so I, oh. i'm not necessarily encouraging you to rush out and, and get it i don't know <laughs> I, if, if I ever ride another one, then <laughs> that, that might be worth reading. Power meters, it, there's a range of different technologies that we can put onto a bicycle now to measure how hard somebody is working in terms of the, the force that they're applying to them. So a heart rate monitor tells you how hard your body is working, but it doesn't tell you how much work you're doing from a physics perspective. It tells you something about the physiology mm. and the stress that your body's experiencing. So ideally, you want both sides. You want to know how much work your body is physically producing. And at the same time, what's the, the physiological cost or or uh, repercussion of that. And so the power meter is the way of, of determining what the physics of that of, of how much effort you're your sorry, how much work you're doing are so a, a classic way of doing this would be to put some force measures on the pedals themselves, and then you can measure how much force is being put into the pedals, and you can count the cadence, uh, the, the pedal revs, so you can get an index of exactly how much mechanical work someone's doing that way. And then different manufacturers have come up with different ways of instrumenting the bicycle beyond just the pedal. For example, the, the watt bike that you were talking about, I helped. I helped them at an early design stage with that. Actually, many years ago, when they were when they were bringing it to market, and the way that they um, measure power output on that is they make the chain run over a little a plastic bush, and they measure the deflection, the force of the deflection in the chain as you as you pedal, in order to calculate how hard you're 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 pulling on the chain, for example. But a lot of other power meter manufacturers measure it in the crank or they measure it in your rear hub as well at the back wheel. So there's a a lot of different ways that you can do it, but they broadly um, all trying to do the same thing.
0: What would your recommendations be for someone that wants to achieve a certain level of power output, but maintain it for a long period of time? So I could probably think of probably myself and a number of people I know that, can reach quite high power outputs, but their ability to sustain that is really quite poor. From mm-hmm. a training perspective, what what would your big recommendation be to, say, improve someone's ability to sustain high higher power output over, say, I don't know, twenty minutes? Like, let's say the functional threshold power test often is around twenty minutes. What kind of training do you think someone would need to do to try and improve their ability to maintain higher power outputs?
1: Yeah. Well, the, the first thing would be to ask yourself whether, based on your, your own experience and, the, and your time of training, you think you, your aerobic engine is as big as it can be. So looking to increase your two max would be an, an obvious way to do that. And with actually one of your colleagues at, at um, St. Mary's, Sarah Coakley, we, Sarah and I did a study together where we gave people both – sorry, we had different groups of people. Uh, training for us and some did high intensity interval training so they essentially were making maximal efforts of two or three minutes repeatedly or we had another group that did moderate intensity or well, kind of moderate intensity for the physiologists out there in the heavy domain training where they exercised but mm. essentially for 40 to 50 minutes so that by the end of that 40 to 50 minutes they'd done pretty much as much as they could but the, the intensity of these efforts was really quite different so some were exercising 40 for 50 minutes in a more or less continuous sustained manner. And some were doing these short, really high-intensity intervals. So what's popularized as hit high-intensity interval training. Mm. Uh, And what Sarah and I found was that the gains in fitness were very similar for both protocols. Now, there's the subtlety of that from the literature perspective is that if you just evaluate the the benefit in terms of the amount of time you spent training, then the high-intensity interval training was much more effective per minute of training time. So you've got the same gains, but from a much, much shorter training session. But not everybody necessarily enjoys doing that, or you might want to do a mix of different training approaches, in which case two very different looking sessions can actually achieve similar or comparable kinds of gains so what coming back to your question about the 20 minute thing you could think about it is like if you're if you want to improve your performance at 20 minutes a really obvious thing to do is to exercise for 20 minutes as hard as you can and hope that you can gradually push it forwards just by repeating your 20 minute efforts the high intensity interval approach would be to go above that and do these repeated intensity high intensity intervals now the benefit of that approach is that you would be working at a power output that's much greater than you can manage for 20 minutes but you could actually, over time, accumulate 20 minutes in one session by, let's say, doing four-minute blocks at a power output that's much higher than your 20-minute block, and then resting for a little bit, and then doing another four-minute block, so now you've done eight, and then rest a bit, and then do another four-minute block, and now you've done 12, and so on. And then eventually, you get to 20 minutes, but you've accumulated at a much higher power output. Equally, you could think about pushing your fitness up from underneath by exercising at below your 20-minute intensity, but for a much longer period of time, like we said in Sarah's study, for 40 or 50 minutes or so. And the difference it really is that in each of those sessions, you're trying to go close to the maximum that you can, but you're doing it for very different intensities and very different durations. So you can imagine if you're doing short, high-intensity intervals, and I, I know I use 20 minutes as my example, but typically you might not even go much longer than, than, than that. So you're doing really high short sessions. And then as you drop the intensity, they get progressively longer and longer. But in a way that we sometimes forget, it's not quite a linear progression. It's disproportionately. So if you drop the intensity a little bit, you have to go much longer to reach the same the same training adaptations.
0: Okay. That's really fascinating around like finding your particular area that you want to improve and then it's like do some training above that and then do some training below that and usually you'll improve (laughs) that middle range or start to move it in the direction that you want to go moves me nicely into my next question because it looks like in the summer i am doing a particular challenge with a friend where we'll be cycling from one side of the uk to the other so 12 13 hour days in the saddle what would your recommendations be for me for training for that and i know that's probably like you just need more time on the bike but when you're about to do an event which just requires you to be in the saddle for so long is it necessary to do that high intensity work or is it just be more comfortable on the bike by being spending more time on the bike you're going to become more efficient in general is it just to keep it low intensity or still do some high intensity stuff as well
1: so so the answer you'll hate is the first one is i'd look I'd spend some time studying the map of the UK to find the shortest distance between the two coasts yep. because that, that's going to minimize your challenge for a start.
0: So. I'll be happy with that. <laughs>
1: And, and I think that would be worth quite spending quite some considerable time on over, over the training, because this is going to be the easiest way of maximizing your performance. But once you've done that, well, yeah. and again, it comes back. So the recurring theme in our conversation really has been about mix, mixing it up and using a diversity of, of different type approaches mm. and then observing what seems to work for you. So in this instance, if you are particularly time squashed, then absolutely going for short, high-intensity interval training will be beneficial because counterintuitively even short high intensity interval sessions enable you to ride further and that the evidence for that is fairly clear and and indeed in sarah's the study that that i was just, just discussing that sarah and i did we asked people to exercise ride for as long as they could at a fixed intensity before and after completing the training program and we couldn't separate out the high intensity interval training from the from the long extended sessions and we both thought before the study started that we would see an improvement in the long ride from the people that trained for longer, but but we couldn't separate them statistically. So maybe if we tested 100 people, the pattern might have been a little bit clearer, but with, with the numbers that we had, certainly it wasn't possible to differentiate that. So If you're time crunched, then absolutely the the, um, short high-intensity interval training is a much more time-efficient way of doing it. But there is no way of preparing for those long-distance rides without also doing some long-distance rides if you have the opportunity. So you'll just find that you're that much more comfortable in doing your long distance riding if you've got some of that in and you will also probably find that it reduces the chances of injury if you can build that up in a sensible way too so that uh, suddenly Mm. doing long rides if you've only ever done relatively short intense stuff you'll probably find you get all sorts of aches and niggles during your long rides that that to a certain extent might have been more avoidable if you'd if you've been able to include some longer rides in there. So I would say kind of, you know, by all means go with what feels like fun, assuming it's more of a fun emphasis than the performance one and do some of those longer rides if you can. But don't be at all afraid to mix it up and do some short, sharp interval stuff as well, because that, that will be beneficial. And then the final thing is, and, and again, this is where life sometimes get in the way. Remember that the amount of training that you need to, to hold on to your fitness is much less than the amount of training you need to do to gain it. So there may be times when in your life, it's hard to really push your training to gain fitness to tackle this challenge. But you can at least keep things ticking over. And the amount that you need to do to keep things ticking over is an awful lot less. So you can drop your training by one third and maybe even two thirds and still keep hold of your fitness. And the key there is always to keep the intensity high. So if you, may, if you maintain your training intensity, you can pair back your training when times get really busy and still hold on to the gains that you've got. And then as you get more time again, if, if the window opens up, then you can start doing more longer rides at a, at a uh, more even tempo to, to start pushing fitness out again.
0: That's a really good piece of advice, actually, especially around the theme of the season, around developing strength and endurance simultaneously. Uh, and if you're training both, together, there's going to be times where you might have a slight focus on the endurance side and other times you might have a slight more focus on the strength side. So knowing that you've been able to maintain the endurance gains that you've got by reducing the amount of work that you're doing, but maybe doing some high intensity stuff just so you can sort of maintain what you got is really quite a nice message To anyone that wants to develop strength and endurance uh, simultaneously, because then you're not you're not trying to train for two different sports at the same time, which will just create some huge amount of volume, which isn't very practical and could lead you to becoming completely over fatigued. So, yeah, it's it's really great. I completely
1: agree. I mean, I mean, I know that this is a theme that you've been exploring in the series at the moment, and and so I'd given a little bit of thought to, Mm. to that, and. The, the, the main thing really is that, yes, not trying to push hard on both fronts simultaneously, but to intentionally focus on one or the other. And to, So if you're focusing on strength to keep the endurance ticking over, if you're focusing on endurance or aerobic conditioning to keep the strength ticking over, but not to try and push hard on both of them and there's fascinating studies done on on, uh, just the kinds of things that limit people's ability to train so for example if you do an arm session it impacts on your subsequent leg session Mm. even though your legs aren't tired so they've done there was a lovely study by johnson in 2015 where he had people doing arm cranking and then to do a a five uh, a five minute time trial and unsurprisingly, from an intuition point of view, the arm cranking then compromised the, the leg cycling effort afterwards. So you could kind of think of that as the of, uh, analogy of if you've been in the gym doing strength conditioning work, it's going to compromise your endurance session afterwards. So you want your endurance session to just be keeping you ticking over if you're focused on strength or vice versa. You don't want your endurance session to be that thing that compromises your strength session. So again, you want to keep one ticking over while you're focusing on the other.
0: Yeah. You don't want the acute fatigue caused by one subsequently affecting the training session that you've got coming up. There needs to be a a bit more of a change in the programming approach that you have to make sure that you can put as much effort into both sessions as possible. So yeah certainly
1: yeah absolutely and the one other thing is training frequency does seem to be a really important factor in terms of boosting performance as well so being able to train more frequently seems to be one of the key factors that enables people to push their performance
0: yeah definitely louis that was amazing i predicted i was going to learn so much and i did learn so much so thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and helping me with understanding cycling a bit more detail where can people get hold of you if they want to learn a bit more about you like i've been reading your work from technically i found all your stuff on google scholar but do you have like a social media account or a website mm-hmm. that if people want to look up more of your stuff where can they go
1: yeah i'm i'm always happy to do what i can to to connect with people so i i lurk on twitter so occasionally I'll, i i post messages on there but but not it depends on how busy i am distracted i am with other things but i have an a, a twitter account train analytics so train a l y t i c s. So you can you can probably find that. Pop my name into Google. You'll pro- it will probably come up with that. Google may well also find my contact details at the University of Calgary as well. So you can get my. Uh, email address and email me at university of calgary that that's also fine most people i think these days probably reach me on twitter first send me a message or, or tweet something and then i follow up from there and then shift it on to email if needs be so very happy to do either of those and yeah i do have a google scholar profile so if there's particular if you're just interested in looking at the research that i've done then you should be able to find it on on google scholar and if you can't find you can't access the paper then by all means reach out to me and i'll do what i can to help you in accessing the paper
0: Brilliant, Lou. That was absolutely amazing. And I'd love to speak to Sarah Coakley, especially as she's leading our MSc at St. Mary's in Physiology and maybe getting some research ideas going, I think. I think there's a lot of scope to push this area further, especially around strength and endurance training. And your knowledge around cycling and endurance work would be really handy to help that so i'll be i'll be in touch if it's okay <laughs> that sounds
1: like a lot of fun and actually just in terms of reaching out phil the other thing is if you've got links that you post then i'm very happy to to share my the information that way too
0: brilliant thank you cool Louis. thank you so much
1: it's my pleasure thank you very much i really enjoyed it